today the cow is mainly valued for her milk and her meat. But what if she was valued for the work she was doing while eating grass, while grazing? In this podcast, we will explore the collaboration between the cow and the grass, working as agents for recycling and storing carbon dioxide in the soil's ecosystem. The redistribution of CO2 from the atmosphere into the soil, mediated by the cow and the grass as part of the carbon cycle, could play a part in addressing climate distress. For this episode, we will first set the stage by putting our research in its context, the Netherlands. By going back in the history of Dutch cow farming, we will try to understand what ties the Netherlands to its beloved dairy. In the second part, we will talk about the science of carbon grazing with Cornel van Rijn, a Dutch organic dairy farmer involved in the Agricultural European Innovation Partnership, whose farm we visited in late September in Hormad, a few kilometers south of Amsterdam. We will conclude our podcast by trying to outline the possible future of the cow. We'll speculate and sketch three hypothetical scenarios of near futures involving dairy and meat. But for now, let's get back to the present. The cow and its relationship to carbon dioxide are more than a controversial subject. Therefore, it appears quite relevant to talk about it in a country like the Netherlands. In fact, could the Netherlands be the Netherlands without its cows? To understand how the country became as strongly attached to its dairy industry, Let us delve into the history of Dutch milk. A flat, bright green, grassy field. A windmill, a herd of black and white cows grazing. That is one of the first images that comes to mind when picturing the Netherlands. The Netherlands the country of dairy. In fact, the numbers are quite astonishing. The Netherlands is the fourth biggest producer of dairy products in Europe, producing nearly as much milk as the UK or Poland, two countries four to five times larger. But even more impressive, it is the third biggest exporter of milk in the world and second largest exporter of cheese. How could a country so small be today one of the leaders of the dairy world? In reality, the Dutch not only play a major part in the contemporary landscape of dairy, but have largely contributed to shape it from the very beginning. The power of the Dutch dairy industry has been, in fact, built on nine centuries of technological development and mass industrialization. How this came to be relies on three factors the country's unusual geography, its commercial power, and its heavy propaganda. It is first important to consider that throughout history, the Dutch literally built their own land. Nearly 20% of the country has been, in fact, brought out from the waters. And indeed, from the 11th to the 15th century, farmers reclaimed more than 70% of today's agricultural land from the sea. And they did so with an elaborate system which relied, for a large part, on cattle. Here is how it went. A landowner would rent his land for very little money to a group of independent farmers. He would build a small village at the start of a strip of land and would then assign parts of it to each farmer. The farmer would dug a ditch for drainage along his plot to create drier soil and establish his field on it. Due to the work on the land, the level of the soil would slowly decrease and the groundwater would rise, 
creating very rich mineral soil covered with grass, but very difficult to grow crops on. The only choice for the farmer was therefore to leave cows feed on it and re-establish his field further away. He would then sell the dairy and meat from his cows, use the money to rent a new portion of the land, extend his ditch, dewater again, cultivate crops, and when the groundwater would rise once again, be forced to raise livestock again. How long he would be able to keep following this process would only depend on his contract and how much land was still to be reclaimed from the sea. Evidently, this system led to an exponential development of livestock farming in the Netherlands and the production of tremendous quantities of milk. Being a wet land subject to constant flooding, the Dutch farmers did not have the possibility, as the French did, for instance with cheese, to stock and mature milk for years. Instead, they would condition it for transport and trade it as soon as possible, therefore avoiding any chance of spoilage. Even today, the Oudekast, the old Dutch cheese, is matured for considerably little time in comparison to a conventional French or Italian cheese. Being proficient traders, the Dutch flooded from the 12th century onwards the European market from all sides, making their dairy industry a real expanding sector of their economy, way above the standards of the time. In a matter of five centuries, most farmers from Holland and the northern territories of Friesland stopped growing crops altogether to focus solely on livestock, multiplying their production by four and transforming artisanal cattle farming into proficient industrial systems. They developed concentrated feeds for the winter, breeding strategies, as well as buying young dairy cows from neighboring countries like Denmark and selling back to them their yearly cows right after being born. Visionaries or not, our contemporary dairy industries are based on principles developed by the Dutch more than 400 years ago. As we explained, and as the numbers still prove today, the Dutch dairy industry was, and still is structurally based, on export. And to have a system based on export means big money, of course, but also means that when export is made impossible, in times of war, for instance, the industry is consequently left with tremendous surpluses. Then, who to sell to? The Dutch milk lobby found a solution at the start of the 20th century, and it was the simplest of all. They would sell their surplus to a group of consumers who was not particularly fond of milk, nor used to drink it, the Dutch population. After the First World War, the Dutch dairy producers united and founded the Crisis Selvelbureau, the Dairy Office for Crisis. In cooperation with communication agencies, the organization started to push milk consumption through various strategies with the same keyword, gezondheid, health. The organization began its work by choosing an easy target, the children. With the help of the government, it began to offer cartons of milk to children in schools, for which the teachers would reserve 15 minutes every morning for milk drinking. Members of the fictional Milk Brigade, which inserted itself in children's favorite magazines of the time, like Tintin magazine, for example, also became extremely popular. Children could become member of the brigade by logging in in a special notebook the number of extra glasses of milk they would drink in addition to their daily portion. If, after 30 days, the logbook was full, the dairy office would then promote the children to milk officers. And milk officers were strong, just like Joris Tripinter, Joris Three Glasses, a young character, member of the milk brigade, who by drinking his daily three glasses of milk would defeat the most evil villains. 
His adventures would be featured everywhere, in comic books, commercials, and street posters, which would then be read with the teacher in class. The game is over, you evil pirate. But how could I lose? Oh well, it is quite clear. You've been defeated by Yoris Tripinter. And why is Yoris Tripinter so brave? Because he drinks three glasses of milk every day. Or yogurt, or buttermilk. You should do it too. These vintage examples can today sound quite creative and frankly, clever. However, it is quite relevant to consider that these campaigns were supported by the Dutch government, helping the dairy lobby fund its commercial stunts by literally diverting tax money or letting it dispose of its stocks in public schools. And that is what we would call today industrial propaganda. And this propaganda is, surprisingly enough, still at work today. Friesland Campina is the world's largest dairy cooperative and one of the top five dairy companies in the world. For more than 50 years, this Dutch company has been supplying milk to Dutch children through its Schoolmelkprogramma, a school milk program. Collaborating directly with the schools, Campina's program enables parents to offer to their child a daily carton of Campina milk for approximately 2 euros per week, which will be given to the child by his teacher again. In 2010, the Campina School Milk Program, which was for more subtlety renamed simply Campina at School, Campina op School, said to be helping more than 100,000 Dutch children to grow tall and strong for a yearly turnover of 10.6 million euros. Milk is good for elk. Milk is good for each and everyone. This 70-year-old slogan has become today a common Dutch saying. And indeed, it is by targeting everyone, local or foreigner, that the Dutch cow came to be the leader of its field. Habitats that are important for nature such as forest, meadows, coastal wetlands, peatlands and grasslands store and sequester carbon into the soil. When degraded or destroyed through industrial agriculture or deforestation, these ecosystems start to emit the carbon they have been storing for centuries into the atmosphere and oceans. They become source of greenhouse gases. Protecting and restoring the health of these areas could, therefore, have a huge effect and help to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. But first, how do we get carbon dioxide into the soil? To answer this question, it is first relevant to understand what is carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, also called atmospheric carbon, or CO2, is the primary source of life on Earth. It is a gas that plants utilize to make photosynthesis for growth. Today, the quantity of CO2 in the atmosphere due to anthropogenic emissions has surpassed the boundaries of the planet. This has created an invisible shield around the Earth, which traps heat, also called the greenhouse effect. Plants take in carbon dioxide from the air and combine it with water to form simple sugars. Many of these sugars are used for growth, however, a significant amount of liquid carbon are leaked into the soil as so-called root exudates. Why would a plant leak important sugars? The answer is to feed microbes, because it is their life source. 
In return, the microbes supply the plant nutrients and minerals, which they are able to access in the soil. Microbes supported by root exudates are essential to the production of humus, a highly stable and long-lived form of organic carbon with high water-holding capacity and other essential qualities. And in order to keep land from depletion, hydrology is everything. To sum up, we need carbon in the soil where it feeds bacteria, which feeds plants and creates humus, a fertile soil which stores water and carbon where it's needed. To get more carbon dioxide away from the atmosphere and into the soil, we need to stimulate grass growth. This is where the cow comes in. Cows are very efficient grazers, which means they are like living grass mowers. They eat the grass at the perfect length of regrowth if they have enough grass, so to mention. This creates a healthy stress in the grass, and when plants are slightly stressed, they expand their root net, which makes them more resilient. And to build root net, they need CO2 from the atmosphere. And the cow not only takes from the grass, it also gives back nutrients and organic matter in the form of cow dungs, which also stimulates growth and well-being of plant and soil life. But is there a limit to growth? Well, there is uncertainty about it. Some scientists say that the carbon storage has a limit of approximately 30 years. Some say the carbon sequestration is nearly endless. To know more on the subject, we decided to consult someone who had practical knowledge on these questions. We took the train south from Amsterdam to a small village a few kilometers away from the historic birthplace of industrial agriculture, Leiden. There we met with Cornel van Rijn, a Dutch organic dairy farmer, who invited us to his farm to talk about carbon grazing. I'm Cornel van Rijn. I'm an organic dairy farmer. Uh, I'm farming at Buitenverwachting. Buitenverwachting is a uh, multi-generational, uh, small-scale, multifunctional organic farm in Hoogmade, and that's in what they call the Green Heart, and that's the area with pasture land on peat soil uh, between all the biggest cities uh, in the Netherlands. Grass grows very fast and when you cut the grass or when the grass is eaten, so when it's eaten on the outside, they also shed a part of the roots and in that way they bring organic matter into the soil and organic matter in the soil is also CO2. So that's uh, one reason why it's very good to, to, to sequester carbon with grass because it grows so fast and, mm -hmm. and it brings organic matter uh, into the soil uh, and it's also a very nice system if you uh, use the grass in combination with cows uh, because uh, cows do a lot of the work that you need to sequester carbon because if you don't have cows you have to mow the grass a lot uh, and bring manure on the grass and that also costs a lot of work and also a lot of uh, uh, fossil fuel. Yeah and I'm also thinking for example if you would mow the grass and add manure, you needed to get that manure, manure from somewhere, right? I mean, you needed cows also. Or you need to have a lot, a lot of compost, I guess. In this case, the cows would be inside and you would gather the manure and you would put it on the fields. But in, in your system, the cows are already on the grass, which is also a nice thing for the cow. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking aloud yeah. right now. Because you can say, okay, but if you only mow the grass and then let it stay there then it also is, is, is a uh, yeah, green manure for the soil. Uh, 
but the problem then is that you don't harvest anything and then you also have to think okay if you don't harvest anything why would you do that why would you mow it so then it's like uh, a bigger question about economics or, or why you want to do things and there are some people but that's more in arable farming they also and and then there are farms that don't have animals and they also are experimenting with what they call uh, in Dutch at least uh, maimestoffe so they have plants there most of them uh, clovers and they mow them and they let them lay there uh, to mm. manure the soil and then get like potatoes on it or or grain uh, and I think the reason that they do that because it's very uh, unnatural for a, for, a, for a dairy farmer as myself because I think oh it's 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 a pity that they mm-hmm. they just let it lay there because you also can feed a cow and then you get all the beautiful products from the cow like milk mm-hmm. uh, meat and also the manure and the manure you can bring back and then you also have a good soil and then you have the cow products but it's also basically that it's very interesting for them uh, out of the perspective of the rules mm-hmm. because uh, if they uh, let the plants lie down there it's a manure but because it's uh, vegetable matter it doesn't count in the same way as a manure from animals so they can basically they can put more manure on the on, on their land if they do it this way than if they uh, feed it to cows. I'm also thinking that what the animals are adding in form of nutrients is, for example, nitrogen, which yeah. also stimulates the grass growth. And I, I'm thinking that I know that there's more nitrogen in, in animal manure than, than in, in organic matter, let's say, from, from the, the field. Yeah. Right? So, so the cows, they, they optimize grass growth also with their nutrients that they add back to the soil which is is uh, is nutrients that are high in nitrogen which really boost the 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 growth of the grass so yeah in this way the cow is designed in a way to for yeah. grass growth yeah. yeah when you look at the cow you can see why does it have uh, four stomachs uh, because it's designed to to eat uh, material which is very high in fiber and very low in, in nutrients basically and and it's designed with uh, in 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 synthesis with the, the bacteria in in inside to ferment that uh, and and then produce energy for itself and then on the basis of that energy it can also give milk uh, so uh, yeah you have to see it as a uh, walking sauerkraut bed basically and that's a very special thing and then uh, you, you you really have to uh, use that that thing that design uh, of the cow uh, uh, to optimize it um, so you don't have to you, you 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 must not feed it like if if it's an animal with only one stomach like a chicken or a, or a pig and they also have their own uh, ecological niche but the niche of the cow is different, and then you have to feed the cow. For the most part, uh, the 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 feed it was designed to eat. And you also mentioned just before when you were showing us around in your farm that the cow is almost like a a, a mower, a grass mower. It really has a specific way of eating the grass, so it eats everything. Whereas some other animals, they will take a little bit here and a little bit there. 
So in a way, it's really important also for the growth of grass that it's kind of homogeneous in this way that it's fully eaten. But why it's uh, important to talk about the way you graze is because that in a historical perspective, grazing practices has also been detrimental for the environment and can also lead to to a bad, bad poorly managed grasslands. So it's interesting to talk about. Um, and I would also like to talk about something that I also find relevant is uh, the carbon emissions or greenhouse gases that is also that also comes from a farming practice. And you mentioned earlier in an email how you how you manage uh, that or how you would like to also think about that in the farm. Uh, when you're talking about the, the degradation by overgrazing, mm. then I think most of the time you have to think about uh, other regions than uh, that we're farming here uh, because uh, you have some problems with desertification or... Mm. Uh, in Africa also under problems with uh, on which Ellen Savory worked um, but here it's a little bit different because we have so much uh, rain always and the soil is so fertile uh, so it's really hard to to create a desert here or to to, to graze too much uh, the but that, that doesn't mean that you that there are not problems here but I think the problems here are most of the time like uh, the way they do grazing here or, or at least like it, it it's tending more and more to be too intensive in my opinion the way they keep cows here and that tends to uh, give cows more and more uh, concentrate and maize uh, and then they don't see like for example uh, there's a uh, uh, a lot of farmers think that the grass they have in autumn that they they can't use it anymore because it's not very good uh, quality and they have to need more yeah higher quality feedstuff for their cows so their the the development is more and more into uh, a sort of system that looks more like the intensive system just like we uh, uh, keep pigs in the Netherlands for chickens and not so much uh, natural systems and there are a lot of farmers that also use uh, a farm on a more natural way but there's also the the movement uh, for intensification and then it's also a little bit coupled with a bigger scale uh, and I'm not necessarily against uh, farms that are big but I want them to be big and then also have like a balance between how much cows they have and the amount of land they have and then if that's okay then and then uh, a big farm can also have good grazing management but what you see here most of the time is that because land is so expensive is is that if a farmer grows then he grows in his uh, stable and in his cows and not in the amount of land he has and then you have to feed the cows with not with grass but with concentrates and then you have a, a movement for intensification which is not only uh, doesn't use the cow uh, in the way I think the cow is meant to be used, but also it's also bad for the whole uh, special uh, environment because there's also some special farmland birds in the Netherlands that live on pastures. And like the old world population, the, the numbers are very going down very hard, so they're really dwindling. So that's about the, yeah, the degradation that is taking place here. And about capturing carbon uh, or about, about the emissions 
I think that we're grazing and then I think at least for 30 years then it's possible with a good grazing management and not plowing and all those things uh, to, to build organic matter in the soil and in that way uh, store carbon in the soil. But then there's also the emissions on the farm with farm machines and stuff. Uh, so it's not only storing carbon through uh, growing grass, but also, I think, reducing the emissions on farm. Uh, and if you combine that with some extra carbon storage when you plant trees, uh, and then you can think of nice systems like agroforestry, and then you can grow in fields not only grass, but also uh, wood or walnuts, uh, and then you can also store carbon, and then you can design a farm system that is uh, CO2 neutral or even uh, deficit. Uh, biggest problem, of course, always is uh, the money, because we would like to do that, but then we have to do some rather big investments, and they don't have a, a direct return. In what way do you think, uh, on what levels do you think that could be... Uh solved is it on a consumer level like marketing the grass milk grass production um is it also on a rules and regulative level is it an industry level governmental level on on what levels could that be improved in order to solve uh that that more farmers would transition into a more sustainable practice it would be very very nice it just if if the rules are just ecological at least are also logical because now there are so much things that doesn't incentivize to produce food on a ecological sound way for example uh, farmers can put a certain amount of manure on their fields and there, there there's a restriction on that but then they can also get artificial uh, fertilizer and put that on their fields And then it's also the same nitrogen, basically, that they put extra on. So I think it's very hard to explain why that is, except if you think about the lobby for uh, artificial uh, fertilizer or something. Otherwise, it's not really uh, explainable. It would be very nice. I think uh, there's some knowledge, especially in America, I think, about grass-fed beef, for example, So there is a little bit of a, of a movement, but I think in, in Europe uh, and in the Netherlands, it's, it's rather small. The only, uh, the only real thing is that people here uh, really find it important that cows go outside. It started like, I think, 15, 10 years ago that, that uh, farmers started to organize it as a happening that after winter, the cows go outside. And we do that like for, for 10 years that we invite people And like the last six years, every year, there will be like 500 people watching. So uh, I think in the Netherlands, uh, it's not so much about like products are important because of the ecological value or the, the better health, uh, but more of a sort of cultural theme. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, what they call weidemelk. So it's um, uh, milk products guaranteed from cows that they at least come outside, but it's a very small time and stuff but it's a beginning so i think in that sense there is already some some things going on and that could be uh, expanded on the industry level it's it's hard because like when you have a factory you want to basically you prefer probably at least here that 
on every day you get the same amount of milk and i'm not sure how they do it in like ireland or new zealand because there you have a very seasonal flow of milk production because they're totally grass-based uh, farmers here if they produce milk in the spring and in the summer they get a uh, the milk price is lower and then when they produce it in in late autumn and uh, winter they get a bonus and it's not really that uh, it's paid by themselves so it's taken from the farmers that produce in spring and it's given to the farmers that produce in autumn uh, and that's also because of the, the factories what i said but there's also an extra problem which is a rather hard problem at, at least i'm thinking about it but i can see a solution because people go on vacation in summer the the consumption of fresh milk products like uh, not only milk but also yogurt and stuff uh, goes down very much so it's not only the factory but also the consumer so when the consumers don't consume then also the big supermarket chains don't need it and then there's just too much milk for those fresh milk products uh, and then you could say yeah why don't they make a lot of cheese then so I'm, and I'm not sure why they don't it could be that like the, the 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 companies that do make cheese maybe they have a certain capacity and they just make that capacity full uh, all all year round You are involved in the Agricultural European Innovation Partnership in order to find incentives for farmers to take on grass grazing practices and better grazing management. What are those encouragement factors or maybe we should more talk about discouraging factors that farmers have in relation to better grazing managements? And it was very uh, interesting experience and it was just uh, yeah, with a whole uh, uh, EU-wide group uh, of uh, experts, either practical experts like farmers or, or researchers or, uh, or otherwise. I sat in a couple of special groups and also one of them uh, was focused on uh, the disincentives because we were, uh, we were thinking and, and I was saying like, look, farmers are not stupid people. Uh, so, and of course, it's also important to say, okay, what can we do to make it make the farmers do it but we can it's also important to think first why are they not doing it there also have to be some reasons why that changed and also why farmers uh, don't don't change back so that's why i thought it was important also to focus on disincentives uh, if you farm based on grass uh, normally you have cows that give per cow less milk And normally you need a certain total amount of milk to uh, keep your farm running. So if your cows give less, then you need more cows. But if you need more cows, you also need more grazing area or a bigger shed. And then the cost of getting that uh, cost of land is ridiculous in our region. Uh, new sheds are also very expensive. So that's all those economic factors make that uh, at least for the short term in a lot of circumstances it's easier to give your cows a lot of concentrate a lot of mice so they give a lot more and then you can milk a total amount of cow uh, milk with less cows uh, yeah you have to change a couple of rules and maybe some economic factors to 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 really change that So do you think there is a potential for farmers in the EU to optimize carbon sequestration? Yeah, 
<laughs> that was almost too easy. <laughs> luckily, luckily there is. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of things uh, farmers can do, uh, and there's, yeah, there's uh, some things just uh, not plowing, uh, getting from a monoculture of one kind of grass to a polyculture of different grasses, leguminous uh, plants, and uh, different herbs, uh, different ways of grazing. So uh, farmers can and really start small. And there's then also, so there's small things and there's also some bigger things that changes the whole farming system of that farm or like the whole system. And then you're thinking about changes in like for the farm, then different breeds of cows, that sort of thing. But there's a lot of potential, I think. Uh, but there is one thing finally that we did not talk so much about, which is a bit like the dark uh, side uh, of uh, of cattle like it's the the reason why everybody is uh, is uh, saying uh, cows are bad etc and the methane production and uh, and uh, and also like the manure management for example do you know maybe some techniques just in terms of feeding that have an impact on it or uh, in terms of manure management too or is it still like a field that is quite uh, uh, badly known and there are not so much solution in the end uh how to start yeah I'm, I'm not really a fan of like doing all kinds of weird stuff to make them uh, produce less methane and, and I think like in in diet most of the time it's basically getting them more concentrate feed yeah. and less because the, the methane is just a product of the fermentation and the fermentation is just the the special power of the cow and also we have a very old stable and what what we do want is like if you in the wild in the pasture a cow doesn't piss where the cow shits so there's a divorce between urine and shit and that's also better uh, not especially for the methane but for the ammonia and stuff we want to have a new farm system that that's payable and that separates uh, the urine from the from the shit uh, we can use the urine also as a fast manure to, to really feed the plants the shit is then combined with straw and then composted and then there's a lot of organic matter and then we can put more organic matter in the soil uh, but there's like about animals of course there's a not only methane but there's a little bit of a bigger uh, discussion which is also a little bit longer e eating animals and keeping animals for feed and it's an ethical discussion of course but it's also like uh, for a long time going at least in the Netherlands that they say yeah it's very bad to eat cows for the environment uh, because they produce a lot of co2 and then if you don't eat meat then you can drive a lot and still be better for the environment <laughs> and and i i'm not really buying into that and uh, f first of all like a cow only eats plants and then shits and you give the shit to the plant and then uh, the plant uses that basically so it's not that the cow on itself takes all the stored co2 in the fossil fuels and uses that to pump it into the air and then so i, I think that the, the problem really is in use of fossil fuels because the the cow is in the natural system and in the mm. natural uh, circle of course there is emissions but it's also like storage because the cow eats plants and the plant store so uh, and i think also there's uh, there are some groups for, for them it's good if they can say 
the cow or animals are the problem. Uh, for example, you have like the new uh, vervangers, the meat replacers. Yeah, that's also a little bit, in my opinion, it's better for a lot of companies. You have like the Dutch Unilever that makes Unox, which is, which is a famous sausage uh, uh, in the Netherlands. And it's better economic model if they can make that sausage from soy directly uh, as a meat replacer and then sell that so i think there's a lot of uh, part of the industry that's very into the story that meat is bad and we have to uh, eat uh, meat replacers and uh, i know that farmers at least the farmers in the netherlands are really into their own victimhood so they always think that all the civilians are idiots and they are bad to them and they don't like them uh, and I don't like the victim the victim status at all uh, but what I do think is that it's very easy for people to say okay there's a problem with the climate we have to uh, get less CO2 in the atmosphere uh, but we do want to fly two, two or three times a year and we do want to use our car but we have a solution if we just don't eat meat anymore and all the farmers start growing plants we we have a solution so that's a little bit how i feel about uh, the, the dark side uh, or the cowspiracy or <laughs> i just have a few notes uh, to that first of all like the measurement of methane is also ambivalent i yeah. think yeah. and um the second thing is uh, is the thing of producing fodder, which I think has also been controversial in the sense that it takes up land, extra land. So 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 dairy and meat farmers they are taking up a lot of land basically for for uh, food production. But if you would have, for example, if you would transition into uh, grass farming or carbon farming, let's say, then the cows would also not need so much uh, additional fodder basically and then you would maybe have less land am i correct first of all uh, people don't eat grass what i said before because of uh, it's so wet in in autumn uh, and also in spring we can really can go grain or potatoes or something so our our fields are only we can only use them for example for grass and then we need the cows to make the grass into very nice products like milk uh, and meat and also the, the, this is in, uh, in, indeed the story that like production of animals is not efficient because if you if you produce soy and you feed the soy to pigs then mm. what you can get from the meat uh, in calories is a lot less than what you get from the soy mm. and in a certain sense that's correct i think in the netherlands you have a lot of pig farmers very intensive a lot of the feed comes from south america goes to Rotterdam, then goes to the, the, the pigs, and then they grow, they sell the meat, and then they stay with a lot of shit. And then because the feed is produced somewhere else, the shit can go there, so then you have a lot of overproduction of shit, and that's just a stupid system. And I agree with it. But on the other side, there is enough food on the planet at the moment for all the people that they are so the problem i think is not really a production problem the problem is distribution if people in south america of africa don't have enough money then they can buy 
the food that there is and then if the owners of the pigs can buy it then it goes there so it's really not uh, a production problem i think and it's also like if you can say yeah but if you can produce more then the price gets lower and then more people can eat and maybe that works a little bit but like in the end uh, farmers also need to live they have to get some money and even if they they always say okay bigger scaled because then the cost of production of every unit gets lower but it takes a long while before it really gets lower because for example here uh, farmers that build a bigger stable and buy more land the the first 20 30 years they just only work for the bank because they have to pay all the money they need to buy the new things so i'm really not buying that if you go for bigger scale then uh, the cost of the products really goes below the level that everybody can buy it so i think the problem of feeding everybody on this planet is not really a production problem but it's just distribution I'm also just thinking when I mentioned this thing about land use, I was thinking that if we can release some land from intensive dairy or uh, meat farming, cattle farming, then we can maybe release that land uh, for nature uh, conservation, which would also be ideal, I think. Do you know the Oostwaardersplassen? No. Uh, they made a new province in the Netherlands, in the IJsselmeer, and then they also made uh, one of the biggest nature reserves in the Netherlands. And they said, okay, we're going to put like uh, horses and cows and, mm. and all kinds of animals, except big predators. Mm. And they're going to put a fence around it. And then we just keep it like natural, mm-hmm. like the savanna or the Serengeti. Uh, but the problem is, well, what do you get when you don't have predators? Then you get, get over, overpopulation. overpopulation. Yeah. So like uh, the grass, uh, if you if you go there... There are some trees, trees all dead. Uh, the grass is like not even a centimeter long, mm-hmm. and there, in the, especially in winter, all, a lot of animals die. And it's mm-hmm. just—it's also natural because, like, the population grows and grows and grows, and then there's not enough feed, and there's overgrazing, and there's ecological degradation, mm-hmm. and there's suffering from animals, and they can go out, and there are not predators. But if you uh, if you take the same area and you see it as one big uh, extensive organic farm, then you can keep also big grazers there, but then you cull them uh, and you use the animals for meat. And then you man does the work what the predators normally do. Exactly. Yeah. And the problem, you can also say, yeah, but then you have to don't introduce men, but just introduce predators. Uh, but then if you work with big predators in the Netherlands, then it's very, uh, very uh, high population and it's very small. So then you also get the problem, yeah, you can't put the predators behind a fence. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't work because the area is also too small and around the area are a lot of cities and people. So it doesn't work. Yeah, it's it's uh, really interesting. Also because Netherlands is such a special case because you almost don't have any wild nature left. No. I mean, no. everything is, is a man, no. touched no. by man. Uh, and the controversies with, with that model as well. Um, because I guess that's also an argument for a lot of people that why don't you just release the cows in nature, <laughs> right? And uh, that's also a human act in a way of 
doing that and yeah. what with that course nature and yeah just one last thing or maybe i have two questions more that's yeah. it um yeah. <laughs> okay I also, yeah. I also have to mute the cows Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's just talking about manure because a lot of people don't consider that the vegetable the vegetable production also needs input from yeah. animals, yeah. which is manure. So it's a uh, it's interesting to talk about this circular economy in a way because it needs to exist in order to our foods for our food system to be intact in a way, and you need to consider all these different aspects of food production yeah so the last question no maybe i'm done actually uh, or maybe i have a cheesy question. cheesy question yeah and that is that is connected to the future as well like what if you didn't have all these rules and regulations what would the dream farm be for you like uh, less cows and i would uh, i have a affinity with the groepstal and Think you know where where you have a, a shed when when the cows are inside in winter when they're like can, can move a lot that stall system I'm I'm really I'm really fond of mm-hmm. but it's you can say yeah the cows can move a lot in winter and that's true mm-hmm. uh, but they do they can keep their horns easier and then they if they stay outside like all spring and summer and autumn and then you also have that system but then you can have a special area so they can walk every day a little bit if you could make a living with like 20 cows or 15 that would be very nice mm-hmm. i think but uh <laughs> <laughs> i'm just dreaming following our talk with cornel van rijn we decided to shift our perspective the farmers to now reconsider this question in relation to public demand and contemporary trends Considering that agriculture and food production touches almost every aspect of our society, this speculative exercise is, of course, debatable and easy to question in practice. We have tried, however, to take a consistent amount of touch points in consideration in order to sketch the most accurate scenarios possible. This first scenario does not base itself on an idealistic sudden change of opinion from European policymakers, but rather tries to stay quite realistic by betting on the goodwill of a few farmers which could, by demonstrating the economical relevance of an holistic farming model, inspire others to follow them in switching to sustainable farming. In this scenario, the business of these farmers will be not based primarily on state subsidies, but rather on consumers who would purchase their product for environmental reasons. The dairy and meat produced by these farmers could be marketed, for instance, as holistic grazing cows, CO2-negative cattle, or even produced by agents of carbon sequestration in the soil. May these products be sold with the help of a common label or well-rounded marketing narratives, This scenario could, in any case, allow farmers to have a closer relationship to meat and dairy retailers who would most likely be interested in displaying their good intentions and showcase their collaboration with these environment farmers. Putting these environmental qualities aside, the taste and health benefits of grass-fed cattle could anyhow be sufficient reasons for some consumers to purchase and consume grass milk, grass cheese or, and the US show already great results, grass-fed beef. This second scenario is set a bit further in time as it relies for a part on the growth of new trees. In relation with the carbon sequestrated by the planting of trees and development of human-designed forests, 
This second scenario could allow the production of dairy and meat to slowly decrease from intensive to extensive farming. Putting the livelihood of the farmer into the equation, the economical loss generated by the reduction of the herd could be countered by courageous farmers by transitioning to a silver pasture model of farming, which would rely on transforming his land into a productive food forest. By mainly producing fruits and nuts, these forests would guarantee the farmer a new source of revenue, as well as becoming a rich grazing land for their reduced herd. Of course, having cattle dispose freely of the land would make the work of the dairy farmer much more tricky. To that end, this model relies on technical development and the design of tools such as, for instance, GPS trackers for the cows or transportable milking parlors. In this scenario, the state would therefore play a part in helping the farmer transition from conventional farming to silver pasture model by giving him access to subsidies in the same way it today helps fund the transition to organic farming. Today, products such as cheese, cream or sausages, transformed at the farm by the farmer, have a stronger economical value than raw products such as milk or live animals, which can, often, only be sold to large industries who will charge the farmer for processing. In this second scenario, farmers would rely on corroborative farming, which makes consumers part of the farm, to guarantee the sale of products they would process themselves, such as cheese or sausages, for instance, as well as alternative products which would make use of the nuts and fruits produced by the forest, such as nut milk or cheeses made out of a combination of nuts and milk, for example. This third scenario is set even further in the future and tries to answer a question of ethics, which can sound relatively naive, but is in fact quite relevant. Why not release the cow and let it run free in the wild? This third scenario will not actually answer the question from an ethical perspective, but actually try to evaluate the positive and negative aspects of it. To tackle the question, it is interesting to first consider what would be the effects of releasing today the current world population of livestock into the wild. It is safe to say that if we were to free all at once the 1 billion heads of cattle in the world today, all living wild ecosystems would be impacted and ultimately destroyed in a matter of weeks. Furthermore, the cow, which has been domesticated for 8,000 years, would not only impact its environment, but also be incapable of surviving in the wild, as it would be physically unable to sustain itself in the winter, for instance, when grass is harder to find. To allow the end of livestock farming and the application of a model in which cows could be freed from human exploitation, we would need to push and radicalize our second scenario and gradually withdraw our exploitation of cows, relying therefore only on agroforestry, on food forests. This hypothesis would however not be applied on already efficient lands, like peat soils for instance, which are more effective to stock carbon than a forest, actually. These lands would therefore be kept for livestock farming. Furthermore, this scenario would only be remotely conceivable in the Western world. The fact being that millions of people do today, and will still in the near future, only be able to survive thanks to livestock. Countries of northern Africa, for instance, do make use of livestock on terrains where the growing of crops is close to impossible. If applied 
only in Western countries are Thirtenario, based on the model of agroforestry, would solely rely on the work of a few of these newly rewilded animals, guaranteeing the good life of the soil and the ecology of the land. This population of wild cattle could be, in case of overpopulation, be managed by humans through hunting, for example, as the introduction of natural predators such as wolves would be relatively unsafe in populated areas such as the Netherlands, for instance. We can today, however, witness examples of cattle de-domestication in countries like Portugal, where biologists have managed to successfully introduce all breeds of cows close to their wild ancestor, the auroch, who can defend themselves against most of their predators and would be quite suited to go back into the wild. For this third scenario to be applied, it is also important to take into consideration that to guarantee food security, our systems will have to sustain an important level of production, which, for a large part, relies today on an input of nutrients, which mostly comes from either artificial fertilizers or animal manure. If the quantity of animal manure would be drastically reduced, we would need to either increase the input of artificial fertilizers, which would also be environmentally damaging and detrimental to the soil even, or rely on another model which could call on the use of human manure. Indeed, human waste products are never used in production and could therefore answer to this question. However, human manure is toxic, as it includes residues of drugs, medicine, as well as human transmissible diseases. We would therefore need to find efficient ways to detoxify it, before even being able to consider taking the animal out of the current systems of food production. One question still needs to be answered to commonly address these three scenarios, the cost of the food. It could be argued, indeed, that the food production of these resilient models could only be accessible to the rich upper classes, which is actually quite true. But we also need to consider that before the Green Revolution, food was sold at much higher prices. In large cities like Amsterdam, for instance, rent costs were much lower in relation to the percentage of money which had to be dedicated to food. One solution would be therefore to reconsider nutrition by making use of smaller quantities of nutrient-rich, expensive quality products rather than large quantities of cheap, nutrient-poor ingredients.